the more elite the athletes, the more likely that they are to be abused with, from somebody within their own entourage. Because oh the more God. elite the athlete, the more that they want it. I mean, Michaela Maroney is a great example. She felt like she had to put up with sexual abuse from her physician, Dr. Larry Nasser, in order for her to ha be able to get on the stand, to be able to get it to the Olympic Games. And she shouldn't have to go through that. I mean, no athlete should have to go through that. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak about the intersection of the Me Too hashtag and the world of sports. In case you've been living, as we used to say, in Dick Cheney's bunker, you know that there has been an explosion, a dam bursting, of women in the world of Hollywood coming forward with stories of sexual harassment and assault. It started with Harvey Weinstein, but it has dramatically spilled out well beyond Hollywood. And we want to talk about it in the world of sports. And we couldn't have a better person with whom to discuss this. We are going to be speaking to Nancy Hogshead McCarr. She's been a guest on this show in the past. She is a 1984 Olympic triple gold medalist swimmer. And she is the CEO of Champion Women, an organization that advocates for girls and women in sports. She's also a civil rights attorney who has successfully represented athletes in precedent-setting legislation and is one of the nation's foremost experts on gender equity in sports. I've also got some choice words this week about Jerry Jones and whether or not the owner of the Dallas Cowboys is all hat and no cattle, as they say down in Texas. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. But first, let's go to Nancy Hogshead McCarr. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Oh, thanks, Dave. Really great to be here. First, just a general question before we get into the specifics, both about your article and about the intersection of Me Too and sports. Just what was your general reaction when the dam first burst, so to speak, and you started to see these outpouring of stories, you know, really starting around, you know, the world of Hollywood and Harvey Weinstein, but then extending out into everything from journalism to politics uh, to sports itself. Like, what was your reaction, though, when, when the when the dam started to burst? Did you expect it to be this volcanic? No, I did not. But I went on to Twitter and just followed the Me Too hashtag. And I wanted to make sure to like as many of them as I could because I wanted people to feel that they had been heard. And, you know, so it wasn't just the famous, it wasn't just the top tweets. I wanted to, you know, just every every little girl or every every older woman who had never voiced this before, I wanted them to know that somebody was out there and reading them, which I was. And then I just realized like, you know, this is impossible. This is an avalanche. This, mm -hmm. you know, right. So then I was really getting how big this was. And then when Michaela Maroney tweeted the U2 uh, with a story about her sexual assault by one of her physicians, um, you know, that really broke it open for athletics right there. Right. Now, and I was hoping now you could maybe speak about that a little bit. I mean, as you said to me over an email that if people even so much as Googled Me Too in sports, they would see just hundreds of examples of people speaking about the intersection of the two things. But can you speak a little bit generally about what we've learned about the sports world that maybe we didn't know before uh, because of these revelations? Well, um, 
I hope, I think what the Me Too campaign is mostly about is just awareness that people recognize that how many women that this affects, that this is an overwhelming part of women's lives, that this is, that something that happened to them when they were um, anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30, 40, how that, that impacts the rest of their lives and how having it, having had it happen to either a relative or a friend of theirs, that that also impacts their day-to-day living life. So I think that's what it's mostly about. Um, but then the springboard off from there is, okay, now what do we do about it? How do we, how do we make it better? Um, you know, I, I encourage people to go to do uh, Google the hashtag, not Google, but get onto Twitter, hashtag me too. And then whatever your thing is, whether it's entertainment or it's medicine or, or, you know, physician or, uh, um, you know, doctor, lawyer, whatever. But I did uh, me too with coach. And I also did me too with sports and, mm. um, and just, oh, and me too with athletes. And just, it was, it was stunning how it's every single sport and just, there's like a sadness that comes from reading all those. Um, and you really see that almost all of them said that they didn't report that they didn't uh, do anything about it. And uh, so we got to change that. We got to, um, and, and I think the me too campaign is uh, it frees all of us up with this idea that, Number one is it's just us. It's so shameful and alone. And right. So you have this sort of camaraderie that no, it's actually something that binds us together. It's actually something that, that is part of the female existence. Um, uh, and then, you know, then you get into the weeds, which is where, where I live, which is where you're talking about, you know, what are the policy things that one oh, can do? To make oh, we're going to get to the weeds. I promise yeah, you. Sure, yeah. We're gonna to get to the weeds like 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 we're David Stern sitting down with uh, Al Harrington. We're gonna to get to the weeds. Um, sorry, a little marijuana reference. Uh, sorry, but uh, but 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 I do. But before we get get into those into the into the thicket, I, I do want to ask you about. Uh, I mean, this this is what I'm wrestling with, and I, and I know you can shed some light on this. There's an aspect of this where it's like, okay, this is part of the experience of women facing oppression and sexism in the United States and it transcends category. It happens in entertainment, it happens in journalism, it happens in sports, it happens in law. You know, that's one way to look at this. But mm-hmm. are there also very specific things about the sports world that provide opportunities for predators and p- create atmospheres that put women at risk? Well, yeah, absolutely. First thing is, is that sports is a male dominated environment so that women who are in there participating, women coaches uh, uh, tweeted a lot of me too's and because they wanted to make coaching their profession, they really felt that they didn't have any option, right? They were worried they were going to get replaced by a male. Um, So I think that there's that aspect. Um, um, But then there's also just the, the the Harvey Weinstein like power that a coach wields over an athlete's life. Um, most athletes do not have the luxury of being able to move to find a different coach. Um, if it's if that's their high school coach, then they're either going to make it with that coach or they're going to that that they're not going to make it in the sport. Um, and uh, and same thing with college, you've got these very draconian NCAA rules that won't let athletes move. So. Um, 
so there's this non-mobility of the athlete uh, and you've got, uh, you know, an athlete's dreams right there in their hands and they can make or break it. So just like Harvey Weinstein can make or break somebody's career, same thing with coaches. And it's a recognition. Yeah, that's a fascinating of- thing you just said, because, I mean, I think a lot of times when we speak about the college um, athlete dynamic to the coach, uh, we speak about it very much in t- terms of economic exploitation. But you're saying that it, there's also that also opens itself up to uh, to gender or sexual exploitation as well. Undoubtedly. I mean, think about it. Uh, the, a college coach determines whether or not somebody has uh, a college scholarship. For a lot of people, I mean, there are, there's well there's several billion dollars right now being spent on athletic scholarships. For many people, that is how they plan to and how they are going to be and how they're going to finish their education and launch their trajectory into their lives. So if that coach can stand in the way of that, then that's, uh, then that's, that's a big problem. They also determine how much playing time somebody has, whether or not somebody's going to get a record. I mean, I wasn't sexually harassed at all when I was at, at Duke university, when I was a swimmer with my coach, but when he was mad at me, he made me swim, swim events that I wasn't that good at, right. That were not like my prime events that I wasn't going to win easily. Right. And it was just a way for him to kind of right get to me. But that's just another form of power that a coach has over an athlete. Um, he knew that I wanted to graduate being undefeated. So he was like, <laughs> put you in the backstroke. So it, um, it speaks to the power but, dynamic, though, too, because while that sounds like just typical what we would imagine hard ass coaching to be if it had been wielded in a. In a in a more I don't know what else word to use, but a more nefarious or evil way that that right. opening for coaches to do that is there. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And just you know, everything you know, staying on the team. I mean, for so many athletes, the team becomes their peer group, becomes their support system. So what's at stake for them is their their education for the rest of their life, their peer group and their support group, and the thing that makes them feel that they are competent in the world, that they're special, that they have this, you know, they really put a lot of effort into, into this endeavor. Right. And all of that is at risk. Um, if they, if, you know, if they've got a coach who is nefarious as you termed it, which I agree. <laughs> you know, you said something and I, I want to quote it back to you. And this is my last, before we get into the weeds question. Um, cause I, I really do want to speak about policy and what we can do about this. And I think this will be a good intro to do that. Uh, you wrote in your terrific article um, for ESPN the magazine about this subject, which I've already tweeted out on the Edge of Sports hashtag. People should check it out. I will retweet it as well. You wrote, uh, given the power dynamics and the proximity between athlete and coach, some abuse is inevitable. Now, I wanted to ask you, though, like if, like how, how do we untrain coaches then because it seems like then to get to the root of the problem means going to the coaches themselves like how else could we possibly have sports that's abuse free like how do i mean i I mean even if we'll never get there even if that's utopian i think we have to think about how we fight to move in that direction how do we begin to do that i mean i guess i'm giving you a magic wand or making you head of the ncaa how do we do that Right. Um, Okay. So I think one of the most important things is to get a cultural norm that coaches are just like doctors and lawyers and therapists and religious leaders and uh, prison guards. And uh, they are just like, they're, they're like parents. Thou shalt not. 
coaches may not have romantic and sexual relationships with the athletes that they coach, regardless of age or consent. And let me say it louder for the people in the back. Coaches shall not have romantic and sexual relationships with the athletes that they coach, regardless of age or consent. We come from a culture where we understand that of course that a teacher and a student cannot engage in a sexual relationship regardless of age or consent. But, um, but that, that idea with coaches just is not there, which is shocking given that how much more time that coaches and athletes spend together than your average teacher student are going to spend together and, and the, the, the casualness that they'll spend that time together. Um, uh, when, when I was uh, training, the, the way that it was framed to me and to, to everybody was is that um, coaches dated their athletes. And even if they were underage, it was like, well, you know, they're just dating. And um, when I was 12 years old, my, the, our, our rival team, the story that I heard was not that a coach was molesting the, the athlete. What I heard was that, oh, yeah, this coach's wife is really mad at one of the swimmers because she's sleeping mm. with her husband, right? It was, it was not seen through the lens of this is just flat-out abuse. Mm-hmm. So if it happened in any other context, it, it, right? You, you wouldn't be looking at it as, you know, they're dating or, or, mm-hmm. um, or, or that, you know, it would be okay. There are way too many marriages. Uh, most of them that I saw, the vast majority were very short-lived marriages. I mean, we're talking less than a year. That was really just validating abuse that happened when, before the athlete was of age. Oh, and uh, anyway, so. So when you, and you know, it's not just to help the underage athlete. It's also, um, you know, all the, the nefarious things that we talked about are apply just as much to an elite Olympic athlete. There's actually interesting. There's research showing that the more elite, the athlete, more likely they are to be abused from somebody within their own entourage. So, um, the, wait, like, wait, can you, you repeat that? Sometimes I like mm-hmm. people to repeat things because because I'm just like I do too. Yeah, double yeah, no, and triple more... take. Can can you repeat that? <laughs> the more elite the athlete, the more likely that they are to be abused with, from somebody within their own entourage. Because oh the more God. elite the athlete, the more that they want it. I mean, Michaela Maroney is a great example. She felt like she had to put up with sexual abuse from her physician, Dr. Larry Nasser, in order for her to ha- be able to get on the stand, to be able to get it to the Olympic Games. And she shouldn't have to go through that. I mean, no athlete should have to go through that. Wow. Uh, and what's also sort of staggering about that is that it immediately, obviously without na- make, naming names, it makes one think of all of the remarkable female athletes who have you know, been you know, in the public eye over the last 20 years or longer and thinking about what they had to endure, um, yeah, behind closed right. doors. I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible not, not to think about that. Yeah. And um, here's the thing. I think, wow. and, and I can, I can add a, a, something that keeps, uh, those very elite athletes silent is the fact that they want endorsements, that they want to be seen as everybody's sweetheart, that they, they have a certain image and the idea that they are a victim of sexual violence is contrary to that image that they're trying to portray. So they want to stay in good graces with the Olympic committee. They want to, um, they, you know, it's such a yucky topic to be, to say that you were sexually assaulted that, um, that they do stay quiet about it. 
So mm. I know of some um, multi-Olympic gold medalists who have never come forward and probably never will just because they don't want, they're, they're just not ready or they don't want that to be their cause or their, um, you know, they just don't feel comfortable talking about it out loud. And then, and then you have to, we have to say also when you think about how heteronormative sports is and you think about some of the right. stories that have come out of Hollywood from people like Tony Goldwyn and Terry Crews, it makes you think of young male athletes and um, and sexual assault and the, the uh, not just the pressure, but the, I mean, you, pressure doesn't even seem like enough of a word, but to not come right. forward and be public about what might have happened. Right, right. No, there's a big taboo on boys coming forward and saying that they were sexually abused, and it calls into question their own sexuality and am I gay and that kind of thing. I will say there's a big difference between when somebody is, when a coach is caught and I would say it's for both male and female coaches, but when a coach has a homosexual relationship with one of their athletes, um, regardless of age or consent, that 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 coach gets fired and they are never hired again, as opposed to if it is a male on a female, uh, that coach goes on to continue to coach and will get hired over and over again and will be inducted into halls of fame, et cetera. And sort of the, you know, the crazy things that I hear are things like, well, it takes two to tango. Um, but, but, the, but the difference between homosexual abuse and heterosexual abuse is really night and day. I mean, you look at what happened at Penn state when they I was had, just thinking about that. Yeah. They had, they got fined $40 million. That whole thing cost them about a hundred million as opposed to when you look at Baylor and, uh, you know, the NCAA hasn't weighed in at all on systematic ignoring uh, violent gang rapes of women. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So when the victims are women, we just don't, um, uh, you know, they, they, they just don't get the same attention that um, that um, um, that uh, that homosexual uh, encounters do, even though I would argue if you talk to the victims, they're equally as scarred by the experience. They're equally as, as damaged and traumatized. Remarkable. And, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to then have this discussion then in, in the context of, and not speak about, uh, uh Betsy DeVos and title nine and this idea of rolling back any advances that have been made for Title IX protections to be used uh, to aid survivors when they seek any sort of justice for sexual assault on a college campus. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a fascinating moment in history that we have this Me Too campaign or this Me Too phenomenon that's really <clears throat> taken off across the world at the same time that um, you have boss, you have our government, yeah, who's moving backwards. So on the one hand, victims are losing their sense of shame and being able to come out and say me too. On the other hand, you have Betsy DeVos who, who equates falsely this idea that being a victim of sexual violence is equivalent to being falsely accused of sexual violence. And they're just, <laughs> they're just not the same. They're not, they're not well, on the same plane. 
That's interesting. Um, like you, you, and I swear to you, we're going to get to the weeds in just a second. But this is just really fascinating to me. Like, because you talk about how you have these these two things happening at the same time, where you have a sexual predator in the White House, and you have um, that the head of the Department of Education um, being openly this figure of, of of backlash against women, while you have this Me Too campaign. I've heard some analysts. Now, I would just be curious to know what you think about this that the me too campaign is in many and the you know the blowing the whistle on Weinstein and then everything that that's produced is in many respects a byproduct of people's anger and frustration about the fact that the access hollywood tape did not derail Donald Trump and this idea yeah. that that wasn't this disqualifying thing to have him admit sexual assault and this thing has kind of like been percolating you know like like water pressure against a dam since the election and all it needed what was some sort of trigger for people to be like okay you know there is a sexual predator in the white house and maybe i was not one of his uh, victims but i lived through a similar circumstance and i'm going to be loud about this and right. so do, do you see i mean obviously you know the I, whole thing about I, yeah, correlation I, I, and causation um do, do, do you do you think this is one of those cases causation no. correlation yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Dave. I hadn't I hadn't heard that before, but I like it. I I um I I think that that's true. And in in addition um, to our president of the United States, you have in a very short amount of time. It's not just Harvey Weinstein. It was also um, you've got Bill Cosby and Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly, mm -hmm. right? And so you right. have this. You have a, a a tsunami of these very powerful men who um, have. Um, you know, who have, who have lost all their power because women have finally come forward. So I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's Harvey Weinstein that, that um, I think he was the, sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, the president being part of it. But I think all these other things were part of it as well. Mm. But I, 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 I think you're right. I think a lot of women um, uh, have been just really, um, really pained and hurt emotionally that the country wouldn't care about them, that, you know, it would be okay to vote for somebody who did that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and now we're seeing, you know, sort of a, a, a standing up a resurgence or a, um, a, um, a, 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 a front lash, <laughs> if you will, of, of, uh, coming forward about, uh, having been sexually assaulted. Yeah. Mm. And, so so, I, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Nancy. Now, I, I did want to ask you though about that the the work that you do. I mean, you you've been in these trenches, um, trying to address this issue of sexual abuse in club and Olympic sports for seven years. So, I mean, that's a in very interesting seven years for you to be involved in this. All of the various backlashes and front lashes and that have taken place in that time. What has been the most difficult part of that work for you? in terms of trying to get these club sports and Olympic sports to, you know, enter the 21st century on these issues? Yeah. The most painful part for me is just the, the loss of some relationships of, of uh, those in the Olympic committee who did, who just did not want to change, who, um, who were very happy with the way things were and their, their legal stance has been that they just don't owe a legal duty to that, to that kid and so, and they saved a lot of money from having that legal stance. And um, so in pointing that out, um, 
uh, me and the various organizations that I've worked for have been the only pushback to their uh, right from a policy standpoint of of what they've been doing. They've had a lot of plaintiff lawyers. Probably Bob Allard is the most famous and the probably the most effective uh, plaintiff lawyer to really. He's been after um, swimming for probably ten years, and he. Uh, and uh, he's going after soccer right now. Soccer really has uh, sort of where swimming was 15 years ago. Um, but uh, but but that that has been painful for me. It's been difficult to um, to uh, I, I tried that route as hard as I possibly could. I wrote the model legislation. I I wrote you know one of the you know the long hard uh, papers that says, here's what safe sports should look like, and here's what your jurisdiction should look like, and here's what the penalty should look like, and here, right, it was like all, the whole, like, here, here's your blueprint right there, and uh, even to get that in front of the board uh, took, was, was difficult just to, you know, get a, uh, something like that. Um, then, um, I just uh, want to reiterate for my, for my audience that you're a three-time gold medalist, so it's like you are part of this world as well. It's not right. like you're coming in from the outside. I just wanted to reiterate that. Please, please continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, you know, I, I taught this stuff, right? And I had brought the, I brought, I started off bringing cases against schools. And then when I tried to do the same thing with uh, trying to get help for a victim who was in the club sport era, there's just, no, there's just nothing there. The club does not have a general counsel position. They do not have insurance. They did not have, um, they did not have, uh, uh, you know, there's no, you can't sue the national governing body, even if the national governing body, let's say USA Swimming or gymnastics or whoever, even if they knew that it was happening and they, um, and they, they didn't do anything about it, they're still not negligent. Um, you, um, so there's no, uh, you know, schools have assets and they have a certain sophistication, um, not, not as much as everybody would like, but when you contrast that with what was available for help for somebody who was abused in a club sports system, I mean, there's literally nothing and no, and it actually is slightly worse than I said in my article, which is almost all clubs ask parents for a waiver of legal liability. Now, most of those, when it comes to something like sexual assault, probably won't be enforceable. But most parents don't know that, that it's not enforceable. They think, well, I signed this, and so I can't sue. So mm. if, if, if you were, let's, let's look at it from the other side, if you were a pedophile and you wanted access to kids and you wanted to have authority over kids, you wanted to have power over kids, where would you go? And let me tell you, youth sports is the way to go because you, because you have almost no accreditation requirements. Right. You don't have to pass any test or anything like that. You um, you um, you know, you can get hired all over the country. Um, and, uh, you know, what abusers do is they they have to go through the grooming process, not only of the child, but also of the parent. And so the they're usually very charming people. And they, so they're able to do this over and over and over again. So they, they just get fired. The club uh, is making a lot of money off this person. And uh, so a lot of times the victim, they just sort of sulk away. Or alternatively, if they do fire him, they almost never say it's because of sexual abuse. So they just want to quietly get rid of him. And then he just goes and gets hired someplace else. 
And uh, wow. it just repeat. Yeah, the story. But so by the time that somebody finally gets caught, it's you know they've got between twenty and a hundred victims. Larry Nasser has a hundred and forty victims that we know about that have actually come forward so far. Mm. So yeah, no, the, the yeah, Nasser so, story so is is harrowing. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's like unimaginable when you hear the, yeah. the Larry Nasser story. I mean, the the, the sheer like the, the weight of the numbers. Is, and which is another reason why it was so brave for Michaela to come forward because I do feel like sometimes when you get numbers like that, people can depersonalize it and not see it as like – and that's one of the tragedies, I guess, of how we, we process this information. But you need that individual who we can recognize. And, and But I look at those numbers and it's like my, my, my eyes film over with the evil of this because then also thinking of the parents who might have known and said nothing. You know what I'm saying? The friends who said nothing, the guardians who said nothing, just because they wanted to keep the wheel turning. Yeah, I think some people <sighs> put a bad rap on parents in that they, they think that the parent knows that the kid's being sexually assaulted and they continue to have them be in the sport. I, I actually have, have never personally heard of that, or I, don't, I have no experience with that whatsoever. But I think um, when, you, like when I look at all the tweets, you know, most kids don't tell their parents yeah. and I, because of this me too movement, I have 12 year old twin girls and I had to sit down, talk with them and said, and told them how that when something bad happens, how that people feel so bad about it, that they don't tell their parents and you can always come to me and you yeah. can, you can tell me anything. And, um, yeah, it really, but I you mean, know, it takes the, the famous person to come, forward first and then sort of then there's this tidal wave after that no absolutely um i i also i wanted to ask you about um because your work has been trying to get the club and olympic sports to change their policies around this and right. title nine of course uh, does not apply to the u.s right. olympic committee or the national governing bodies like and even what exists as Title IX under um, DeVos is still Title IX. Mm-hmm. And what what does that mean for you, that that there is no Title IX legislation that, that covers this? And should Title IX cover the USOC and non-governmental bodies? Uh so Title IX is, 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 is <laughs> this is the real weed stuff, it's p- premised on the spending clause, which means that uh, because the federal government gives schools money in exchange for which they have to agree not to discriminate. So mm-hmm. the federal government does not give the Olympic Committee money. So you'd have to sort of, you know, make it some other way, perhaps through the, um, the, the there is legislation that's being crafted right now and it's going through the Commerce Clause which means that only club sports that are engaged in interstate competitions are going to be subject to the statute. Um, um, And they, um, for these, uh, um, um, but I mean, I I would love to see a Title IX-like protection for uh, all athletes, male and female, you know, for all athletes uh, to be able to to bring a lawsuit. Uh, Instead of that, um, right now, there's uh, Senator Feinstein, Senator Thune, and Senator Blumenthal are working on two separate pieces of legislation and trying to reconcile those two. So Senator Feinstein's legislation is pretty uh, athlete-friendly, which is uh, it, get, it makes all, everybody who's in the amateur sports world a mandatory reporter. So they have to both tell their 
uh, national governing body about the abuse, and they've got to tell police, FBI, or to their uh, the children and family services in their area. And it, it, um, if you wanted to bring a suit against directly against the perpetrator, it's $150,000 presumed. You don't have to open up your therapy records. That's a big, big um, uh, problem for a lot of um, for, for a lot of victims when they come forward. They don't want to open up their entire lives. So there's a presumption of 150. Uh, you can get more if you. Um, if you uh, um, uh, are willing to open up those records. Um, but it gives a legal duty uh, to the national governing bodies that they have to do something about, they've got to predict, they've got to prevent, and then they have a responsibility for making it safe for kids. So once they hear about this abusing coach, they have to keep that coach or keep that other athlete or keep that physician or keep that administrator away from the athlete. So it gives them a legal duty that they have to um, uh, protect them. And that's going to make all the difference in the world, that piece mm. of it. Mm. So S Senator Thune's uh, legislation, equally as important, uh, but uh, it comes out of the Commerce, Cla uh, Commerce Committee, and Thune's legislation will authorize this new organization that just got started uh, about <laughs> three solid years after it was announced that it was going to be started, uh, called the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. And uh, it's going to sort of give them the authority, similarly that they did with uh, USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. And they said, you are the entity, right? So it's going to authorize safe sport. And uh, it's going to give safe sport some jurisdiction. It's also going to give them money, about a million dollars a year. Um, you know, running these uh, uh, investigations and hearings are not cheap. So it's going to give them some money. And it will um, uh, um, it, it does a couple of other really good things that uh, will make it safer. So you've got these you got two pieces of legislation and, you know, I'm sort of cheering on that the best parts of all the legislation will uh, be able to come forward. Um, interesting, a, a kind of a sticking point uh, that uh, we at Champion Women are advocating very strongly is to make sure that safe sport has the authority to be able to punish a club that continues to hire a coach that that uh, that has already been kicked out. So you would think that that <laughs> that a coach that's already been kicked out couldn't get get another job, but no, you would be wrong. Uh, we've been working with. Um, with the AAU and with United States Volleyball and uh, with all their sponsors, there's a coach whose name is Rick Butler, who's already been held to have sexually abused at least three girls. And, mm. uh, and uh, he just, he went from USA Volleyball and started uh, working over in the AAU. And the AAU won't kick him out, even though we have the original source material that says that, he sexually abused, you know, he wrote letters to the girls and they kept them and they have dates on them and they've got their birth certificate, right? This is not, uh, this is, this does not rely purely on he said, she said, and you know, you've got a number of victims. Wait, Rick Butler is still coaching. So, wow. Uh, anyway, so we, so we want to make sure that safe sport has the authority to be able to discipline clubs if they continue to hire or have uh, those that have been already kicked out, um, right? The, the, the sort of the, their jurisdiction and their powers can't just end with kicking out the coach. Um, 
the the um, you may have heard in Taekwondo, you've got some uh, the Lopez brothers were already suspended, but if you go onto their Facebook page right now, they are clearly going around the country and giving Taekwondo lessons to kids all over the country. So they have plenty of access to kids. Uh, Jesus and, Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, just because somebody gets banned doesn't mean that they're kicked out of the sport. So, so the, anyway, those are those are the kinds of weeds conversation that we at Champion Women uh, try to get into, and and um, uh, you know what what, do you, what kind of seismic changes do you have to have in order to keep athletes safe? Um, you've got to have the cultural change of making sure that uh, coaches know that it's a big fat red line against any kind of that you don't pick your romantic or sexual partner from within the athletes that you're responsible for. Um, and then uh, to have some kind of consequence, you can't just have the cultural change. You also have to have some pretty strict prohibitions on what happens to somebody. Um, and then there also has to be some legal liability. There's got to be, if, if, a, if a national governing body, a sports governing body or a club, if they do a bad job and kids get hurt as a result of it or anybody gets hurt as a result of it, if there aren't if there aren't economic consequences from that, then people are not going to change their behavior. So, sort of right, it takes kind of you got to you got to you know do a lot of different things uh, in, in a lot of different ways to get where you're trying to go. I got to ask you, do you, do you feel, I mean, it's it's so much of this conversation. Do you, do you feel hopeful? Going forward, do. does the Me Too stuff make you feel hopeful that, that you know, you mean, because like you've been like fighting this fight for seven years, <laughs> you know, with, with right. the USOC, but now you've had this dam break, like in the context of this dam breaking, do you feel hopeful or do you feel like the other side is going to like double down on making sure that this doesn't, in fact, like I've been hopeful by, unlike our government, I mean, yeah. I've been hopeful by the ways in which at least people in Hollywood and journalism have chosen to not double down, but instead, huh. but instead, like say, like okay, Mark Halperin not at MSNBC anymore. HBO saying, okay, we're not doing this guy's miniseries anymore. Um, right. You know, th- things like that. I'm just like, okay, so they're not. I mean, even some of the stuff. I mean, I know Fox protected these people for years until it became inconvenient to do so. But the mere fact that they're acknowledging that it is now inconvenient gives me hope. Do you think we can see that in sports? I'm I, <laughs> I'm hopeful. Yes, I I really am. Uh, at the same time, I'm a little bit guarded in that I've been I've been in the civil rights space for you know, 25 years, and I recognize that this is not a sprint, that it is a marathon. And uh, people, anybody who's been involved in race relationships uh, understands that this is a marathon. That uh, and and you. You, you just can't get all your hopes up and get all excited. And then, right. It's like, you've got to, you've got to be at the, at the forefront of the table and you've got to be looking at what, where the gaps are and where the spots are and moving that ball continuously. Um, for, for, right. For, for the long haul, you've got to, right. When, when I was in law school, I honest to goodness thought, wow, I really like this title nine stuff, but you know, it's going to be over with by the time I graduate. So I better find something else that I think is interesting because this is going to be over. And, um, you know, here it is all these years later. And, and, you know, uh, you know, we've got Betsy DeVos and we're, you know, in some ways back to square one, 
when I was on your show um, the day after the women's march, um, I, I said that the, the, that the cascade was going to be first transgender athlete, transgender kids were going to lose any protection Two was that LGBT third sexual violence and fourth was athletics. And it has gone that way. And um, I, I hate to be right. Uh, but I, 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 I just know that all of us in the civil rights world are bracing ourselves for what what is probably going to happen in the athletics world and how it is that we can mobilize to make sure that that doesn't happen. And of course, uh, she's also gone after, she's also gone after kids with disabilities too. I disability. mean, that was the news this past week. So it's, it's even been, I mean, she has pushed this envelope even more than, than, than we, we feared at the time. I mean, the, the one, the one hope in all this is that, I mean, you're seeing, at individual colleges, you know, like like people on a grassroots level being like, oh, no, 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 no. Just because you're getting different guidelines doesn't mean we're going to let you follow these new backward Neanderthal guidelines. Like we are going to make sure that you toe the line in terms of what we expect from you. I mean, I'm not saying right. you're seeing that nationally, right. but that, certainly right, right. you that have the, seen that. Right. Yeah, that the groups like N, N Rape on Campus and the National Women's Law Center and many others that they've done, uh, Know You're Nine, that they've done on campuses is going to continue. And so that the Department of Education sets a floor as to, you know, you have to have this minimum, but schools are saying, no, 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 we're going to do more. We're going to do right. the Obama era uh, 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 group there. Um, and, and, you know, and, and uh, because you have all these, um, the, the way that, that particularly sexual violence has happened um, around campuses that really it has been the energy and the push that has come from the student body that, uh, that makes me hopeful that schools will continue that sort of once they've seen the light on sexual violence, that it's hard to close that door when, when they're the ones who are really up close and personal and they get to see really what's, how, how badly that this interferes with an, with a, a, a student's educational plan. Mm. Yeah. And my, my producer very intelligently is asking me to ask you if, uh, if like, you know, so people just aren't listening to this passively, um, what you feel like they can do if they're hearing this and they want to see uh, gender justice in the world of sports, if they want to see um, the sports world be more accountable. What, what do you recommend that people do to get involved in this? I mean, I assume sure, sure. looking up champion women and learning what you guys are about needs to be a part of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we're at championwomen.org, and we have a newsletter that you can sign up for. We're always asking for people to do things. What, what I need is people who are willing to expend political capital in order to make change at their school, particularly as it relates to women having opportunities in athletics. So um, we, we we're in the middle of, I've got my research assistant right here, Erica Sexton, and we are um, uh, writing letters to all these universities and to show them how badly out of compliance that they are. Your average school uh, that, we're, that we're writing letters to is about between 150 and 200 female athletes they need to add. That's a lot. That's between, you know, depending on the size of the team, anywhere from, you know, five to ten teams that they need to add mm. for women there. Um, most people don't realize how bad it is. But I need people who 
um, you know, an AAUW type group or people willing to take on their school um, because the athletics department tends to operate as its own little silo out there. I mean, right. It was hard enough for the Obama administration to get the athletics department to have athletes have the same disciplinary processes as all the other students were having. Mm. And so similarly, um, uh, I need, uh, athletics, uh, to, 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 um, I think it's going to change coming from the university community and, uh, people demanding that, that discrimination against women is going to stop because we know about what a sports experience means for a kid. It's just so important for them. Yeah. So I, I need that. And then as far as our sexual violence stuff, um, uh, when you sign up for the newsletter, um, we give people lots of opportunities. We, we've had some huge sign-on letters from the major organizations and uh, individuals, people who had been sexually assaulted, people who we have Olympic champions. Uh, we have, um, you know, just people who really care. And then we, we sent those to every member of, of uh, the, the House and the Senate to talk about the importance of these bills. And fortunately, they've been very bipartisan. Um, uh, but anyway, you know, like there's, there's virtually nothing that I don't need help on. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, uh, yeah, so, so for our, our organ, but there's some other really, really good organizations that are very active. Make sure that you do get with an organization that is not just about fluff and not just saying sort of the 20,000 foot level of girls should play sports, but they're actually willing to get their nose dirty and be on the ground and, and, um, and uh, be out there and make change. Uh, and, you know, yeah, so I, I've, I've already mentioned some groups and, um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, in my, in my next newsletter, because of this, I'm going to send out a bunch of other groups that I, I think are doing really good work in lots of different places. Well, Nancy, I, I hope you keep speaking your truth. Um, you've been incredibly brave throughout this whole process, incredibly open and honest, both personally and politically. You've really put yourself out there. And I just wanted to express how much I admire the work you've, you've done on this and continue to do. Dave, I, I just admire real, first of all, thank you very much for saying that and coming from I you that truly so mean much. it. Oh, right. Nancy, I've asked you this before, but you know, my guys here like, like to know what the favorite music of the guests are, like what they're listening to. Um, so my favorite song is Brick House. House is a brick. Right. Yes, <laughs> and, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and uh, so that's number one. And um, 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 women are doing it for themselves. Love that one. And um, um, but uh, I, I really like funk. Is my right. favorite kind of music, yeah. Awesome. Then we're going to bring the noise and bring defunk as we go <laughs> to commercial break. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nancy. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Be well. Okay, look. 
For 150 years, The Nation magazine has given you the best in unembedded journalism. Just this past week, they produced some amazing, amazing coverage of issues ranging from Bob Mueller's impeachment proceedings and what that could mean to grassroots stories about schools and segregation. It really is a remarkable publication. It's putting out media that nobody else is doing and media that's absolutely critical for navigating these difficult times. And also, I do have to say, if you go to thenation.com slash subscribe and for a very, very small amount of money actually subscribe to The Nation, not only do you have access to tons more articles, but you support the continuation of this podcast. So go to thenation.com slash subscribe and enjoy what is offered. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words about Jerry Jones and whether or not the owner of the Dallas Cowboys is all bark and no bite, all hat and no cattle, all talk and no yeehaw. Okay. So look, it was Tuesday, October 10th when Jerry Jones made it plain. He said that any player on the Dallas Cowboys team who protested racism during the anthem would be suspended. Only two weeks earlier, Jones had led his whole team in a bizarre pre-anthem knee bend. A showcase of unity to advance the cause of unity. It was the protest equivalent of tapioca pudding. After announcing that he would now be cracking down on his quote-unquote boys, yes, that is how Jerry Jones talks, he explained that his motives were paternal. He was trying to help them resist quote-unquote peer pressure. He said that they quote, need consequences to change their behavior. He boasted of the wisdom gleaned from a conversation with Donald Trump that quote, reminded him of the NFL game operations manual, which explains how players should behave during the anthem and failure to do so could result in fines, suspensions, and even lost draft picks, end quote. None of that, by the way, is true about the game operations manual, about what it says players should do, and about what could happen if they failed to do so. None of that is true. And yet it was printed by Chris Mortensen from ESPN based on his conversation with Jerry Jones. At some point over the following week, Jerry Jones must have learned that the rulebook does not, in fact, mandate players to stand at attention. On October 18th, according to leaked reports, he fumed like Yosemite Sam at the NFL owners meeting in New York, insisting they change the manual and punish players for their protests. Apparently, Dan Snyder of the Washington football team sat there sullenly agreeing with Jerry Jones and saying, Jerry gets it. Dan Snyder also said, 96% of fans agree with us, which is a wild number. There is no poll that shows anything like this. I mean, this is like the Donald Trump post-truth world entering a room of 31 powerful conservative billionaires. 96%. I mean, I got to tell you, according to my numbers, 148% of people disagree with Dan Snyder. But let's go back to this. Other than... Dan Snyder, who is just literally one of the worst people in the world. Jerry Jones had no support in this owner's meeting for changing the rules and cracking down on players. They treated Jerry the way the NFL, frankly, now is treating Donald Trump himself. Just roll your eyes and move forward and say, don't mind the crazy guy in the corner. Now, in between this demonstration of Jones's bark and his absence of bite, he met with his team which could not understand why Jones had, quote-unquote, turned against them. And Jones told the Cowboys that he, quote, wanted to play the bad guy and deflect attention from the rest of the Cowboys. 
but all he really did was put them under a national microscope, not deflecting attention, but magnifying it. Jones's public threats were especially odd given that last year, no one on the Cowboys had been among those raising a fist, dropping to one knee, or taking a seat with Colin Kaepernick. This year, on October 8th, defensive lineman Demontre Moore, who has, by the way, since been released from the Dallas Cowboys, and David Irving raised their fists during the anthem. And as one reporter, her name is Kate Haropoulos, she described that they did it, quote, in solidarity with the movement started last year protesting social injustice and police brutality. But that was it. Demontre Moore, who is barely hanging on to the club, and David Irving raising a fist. Now, after a flurry of phone calls from the White House, Jerry Jones decided he was going to be Donald Trump's sentry in the culture war against black dissenters, threatening punishments and giving the addled president, in whom Jones had already made a $1 million investment, a much-needed culture war victory. Yet Jones has been waging this fight for compulsory patriotism in football in the context of Trump's insulting the war widow, Maishia Johnson, and being dragged by John McCain for his quote-unquote bone-spurred deferments for Vietnam and seeing his own popularity plummet. He's a losing horse, and it's possible that Jones is realizing that. Now, last Sunday, the Cowboys were playing the San Francisco 49ers, a team that has decided to maintain the resistance no matter what carrots the owners are offering. They had multiple players sitting, raising a fist, or standing in support of those in protest. And across the field were the Dallas Cowboys in a state of discipline. You could almost sense Trump's Twitter finger twitching with glee. And then the anthem was about to hit its final note, and David Irving raised his right fist. Now, Irving has family who served or are serving in the military. And this is a simple reality for many who grow up poor in the United States. If you aren't making the NFL, enlisting is held out as a way out of poverty. Now, the truth is somewhat different. People can Google poverty rates and people enlisted in the armed forces. But that is what's held out. That is what's advertised to people who do not have a way out of poverty in this country. David Irving's father is a master sergeant in the Marine Corps, and his brother also served as a Marine. Irving said that he had an extensive discussion with his father before deciding to take part in the protests. Now, when asked about Irving's fist after the game, which was a 40-10 victory for the Cowboys, this is what Jerry Jones had to say. He said, Ever since he got back off his suspension, David Irving was suspended for four games at the start of the year, he has made important plays. We need him out there. I am certainly pleased with any aspect of what he was about today with his play or anything else. Think about that for a second. Let's parse those words. I am certainly pleased with any aspect of what he was about today with his play or anything else. It's so interesting because David Irving is indeed vital to the Cowboys' defense. And that immediately makes Jones pleased with any aspect of what he was about today. And as owners squirm to make peace with the rest of workforce, it looks like they're going to ignore players who raise their fists during the anthem, instead focusing on those who sit or kneel. Now, owners must think that raising a fist is less obvious than sitting or kneeling. They must think the optics are better. They must think it opens them up for less protest if everybody's standing at attention, because that word kneel or sitting is the thing that they're concerned about from an optical perspective. But the irony of this is that raising one's fist during the anthem is about as radical a gesture imaginable, 
for calling John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the 1968 Olympics. As John Carlos said, our fists were raised in solidarity with oppressed people throughout the world, end quote. This all goes to show that opposition to the protests has never been about respect for the flag or the anthem. It has always been for Donald Trump about division and racism, and it has also always been for the owners about money and the bottom line. If you read the piece that's in ESPN the magazine by Don Van Natta and Seth Wickersham, one of the things that it highlights in its inside look at the meeting between owners and activist players is that none of the owners are talking about politics. None of the owners are talking about patriotism and the flag. What they're all talking about are things like sponsorship dollars and whether or not it makes more sense for their bottom line to work with the players or crack down on the players. And I think the fact, though, that Jerry Jones now has to smile his way through all this is just another sign of how much ground the owners have lost and how much of their own humanity the players have reclaimed. Now it's time for the part of this week's show that we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Uh, it goes to somebody that Nancy Hogshead McCarr referenced in our interview, and that would be Michaela Maroney. I mean, her comments in terms of talking about what she endured to be on the USA Gymnastics team and her entry into this space of hashtag MeToo has been such a game changer in the world of athletics. Um, as she put it, these are Michaela's words, I had a dream to go to the Olympics and the things that I had to endure to get there were unnecessary and disgusting. Namely, she was talking about the sexual abuse by former USA Gymnastics team doctor Larry Nasser. And this is the number, and it, it's unbelievable. 140 women and, and girls have come forward accusing Nasser of sexual abuse. Abuse And Nasser, by the way, this, this lovely human being has already pleaded guilty to federal child pornography charges and is awaiting sentencing on facing 33 counts of criminal sexual uh, misconduct in the state of Michigan. He's pleaded not guilty to those charges. Just a repellent human being. And just a big shout out to Michaela Maroney for making it so much easier for people who do not have the name Michaela Maroney. Uh, to come forward and speak out and speak their truth and hopefully change the culture of the sports world uh, for the better. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down! We're going to the world of international soccer. It would be so easy just to give Sit Your Ass Down Award to Bob McNair, the owner of the Houston Texans, for saying that the inmates are running the prison because of the NFL anthem protests. Uh, Draymond Green, shout out to him for saying that Bob McNair sounds like, he said it sounds kind of Donald Sterling-y, doesn't it? So shout out to Draymond for that. There's nothing more disgusting than referring to NFL players as inmates, a workforce that's 70% black. The NFL owners always say, like, the players are our partners. They're the face of the league. But it shows the contempt that so many of these people have. I could also give a Just Sit Your Ass Down award to Dan Snyder uh, for saying that 96% of fans are against the protests against racism that have been taking place during the anthem. Look, 
there, there's so much about Dan Snyder that's objectionable on a general level. I mean, anybody who makes up statistics to show that uh, people love the racist name of his team um, is not going to be afraid to say 96% of people uh, believe that these anthem protests are terrible. But there is no poll that comes close to supporting that. And it, ju- it just says something to me. So harrowing but i'm not giving it to any of these owners because i want to give just sit your ass down to the most racist soccer fans in europe that's the lazio team in italy uh for folks who don't know this story uh the lazio fans threw up some anti-semitic graffiti and as if this was supposed to be some big insult pictures of anne frank anne frank wearing the jersey of their rival roma as if that would be a real slur against Roma to show that Anne Frank was a Roma fan. But of course, yes, this was accompanied also with anti-Semitic graffiti. And in response, throughout this, the Italian Serie A league, uh, what they did was they had teams wear Anne Frank t-shirts and they read passages from her diary over the loudspeaker. Now that's pretty remarkable. And according to reports I've read, fans across Italy, it was definitely a mixed reception. Uh, Some fans were amazing about it. They stood and applauded. Some fans were disgusting, turned their backs as it took place, um, sang nationalistic songs. But Lazio, not surprisingly, was by far the worst. Uh, Booing and um, also gathering outside stadiums, singing openly fascist songs and giving Nazi fascist salutes while this was going on. Worth pointing out as well that Lazio was the team of uh, the player Matarazzi, who was headbutted so famously in the World Cup by Zinedine Zidane in the headbutt heard around the world. Bon anniversaire. God, ugh, that's got to hurt worse than getting a birthday telegram from Zinedine Zidane. Yes? Bon anniversaire. And I'm not the soccer expert. I'll be the first to admit that. One of my producers here, Dan Baker, he has some things he wants to fill in about Lazio and racism in Italian soccer. And he also might pronounce Serie A correctly. So the Serie A has had quite a lot of issues with racism. In particular, earlier this year, Sully Montari walked off during a game. He was originally given a yellow card because of this. That was rescinded. But later on, Serie A officials said no player should feel that he has to take this into their own hands and walk off. But the issue is they're not doing anything to curb this. It keeps happening, and even if it's a small group of fans, the fact that it happens time and time again, specifically in Italy more so than in other leagues across Europe, well, I mean, for lack of other words right now leaves something to be desired and a current Chelsea player who uh, Antonio Rudiga he actually early this year said like there's just too much racism in Italian football and that just I hope something changes and I hope this at least this point is a time when the league can reflect and even UEFA as a whole across Europe can really do something and make a change because no one deserves this. A quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. 
Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people, people like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. Well... That's all the time we have this week on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much to Nancy Hogshead Makar for her honesty, her wisdom, and everything she brought to the table. Thank you to everybody out there who's bringing the Me Too movement into the world of sports. Thank you to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Y'all rock. Thank you again to everybody at Wake Forest from a week ago. Uh, for helping us stage our podcast, the interview we did with John Carlos Ibtahaj Muhammad and the great Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. You can go to edgeofsportspodcast.com to listen to that and any of the back episodes. Thank you to everybody giving us ratings on iTunes and Stitcher. It makes a huge difference. Please don't stop doing it. Please keep leaving comments. Thank you to everybody who's making this a very fast-growing podcast. It's amazing to see the growth that we've had, and I really do appreciate each and every listener out there. Uh, to everybody out there listening, you know you can always call us if you have suggestions for the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Down Award. Call us, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. We should start calling it the Just Stand Up, Just Sit Your Ass Down hotline. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>